Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Um, You can open your Bibles, or if you have your lyric sheet, just at the top of it is the sermon text that we'll be looking at this morning, which is in the Gospel of Mark and chapter 12. And we are coming now this morning to a question that's asked of Jesus that led him to give the very heart of his ethic of love. And so our Western culture has actually a very interesting history with Jesus's ethics. And in particular, the text we're going to look at this morning and and other texts related to this. Because we're living in an interesting moment as a culture right now. Our culture is, as you might have noticed, rapidly accelerating toward becoming post-Christian. It's accelerating toward something that even looks to be explicitly anti or against Christianity. And yet in many ways, it can't get away from the influence of Jesus. A number of historians have been reminding of this, us of this over the past few years. One book that pulls this all together well that just came out just recently is called The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. Highly recommend it to you. He shows how those of us living in the West are like goldfish and Christianity is the water in which we swim. Or as the title of his book put it, Christianity is the air that we breathe. So he shows that The values and the goals that we have as Westerners, whether a Christian or not, are deeply shaped by the Christian movements. And so he notices a a lot of values that we view as obvious and self-evident. So values like equality and compassion and consent and freedom and universal human rights. And here's what he argues. He says this, none of these values are self-evident. Nor, and just listen to what he's saying, and if this doesn't sound immediately resonant with you, I commend the book to you to uh, trace his argument. He says this, nor are these values widespread among the civilizations of the world. So where did they come from? And how did they get to become the air we breathe? In other words, how did they become so obvious to us? And the answer is, they came from Christianity. And the very fact that these values seem so obvious to us actually shows just how profoundly Jesus' ethic has shaped our whole culture. That we don't even recognize that it came from Jesus. We assume that it's all self-evident and obvious, even though it has not been obvious in ancient civilizations or in civilizations around the world that have not been directly influenced by Jesus and his movement. So our culture is really interesting right now because even as we reject Christianity, we're pervasively influenced by it. In fact, the very reasons why many are rejecting Christianity are actually from, inherited from, and pervasively influenced by Christianity itself. And the topic of the text we're looking at goes to the root of the influence because many people reject Christianity as being unloving. They see it against human dignity and human love. And yet, here we see that this actually did come from Jesus himself. We can think of it like this. Our culture wants to embrace the ethics of Jesus, love and all its influence, while rejecting the root of that influence, Jesus himself. We want the kingdom without the king. And so in other words, we have this flower that has grown out of the roots of Christianity and Jesus. And we have snipped the stem and we've put the flower in a vase on the table. 
Uh, but we've cut off the roots and that flower will, will wither, which is why I'm not confident that much of an ethical culture can withstand the severing of the roots from Jesus and objective standard of truth. But we're looking at the flower, we've cut off the roots. And so I'm not going to make a case this morning for everything I said. You can read the book Air We Breathe or other books he recommends in there. But what we're looking at this morning then is the root. The roots and the soil that this flower grew in that saturated Western culture. And for Christians, this is a vision for a flourishing life. This is what we're called to. If you're new to exploring Christianity, this is a great starting place to see the heart of Jesus' ethic of love. So let's look at Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. So here's what we'll see with this love command, we'll, we'll see what does it mean, how should we respond to it, and what is its surprising impact. So first, what does it mean? Well, a number of hostile leaders have been challenging Jesus with questions here, and now this scribe comes up who seems less hostile and more intrigued by Jesus, and so he asks that key question in verse 28, which commandment is most important of all? So of all the commandments that God gives, what's the top of the list? So, you know, many rabbis debated this at the time. They counted 613 commandments in the, in the Torah, the law, and they're asking the question, which is the greatest? And we're still asking this kind of question today. We still ask, what does it mean to be a good person? What does it look like to pursue justice individually, collectively as a society? And we're divided on how to answer these questions. We're also divided on where to go for the answer. This scribe assumed that there was an objective ethical standard. He assumed that God has spoken and that ethics come from him so that truth and ethics aren't there for us to create, but they're there for us to receive. So our culture has, of course, shifted away from this assumption and it's put us in a tricky spot with ethics because if there's no moral objective standard, then who is to say what's right and wrong Who's to say what love, justice, and goodness are? So we, we've lost this objective standard or steady foundation for ethics. So there's something to appreciate in this man's question, assuming this standard. And he doesn't know it, but he happens to be standing there asking the one person who can give the answer. The creator of all things standing before him. And so what does Jesus say? Well, the man asks, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, there's two. It's a double love command. We're to be lovers of God and lovers of others. So first, to be lovers of God. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6 here. 
The most important, he says, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Notice a few things about this love. It's not superficial, right? This is a deep love. It's not a command to merely think about God. It's not a command to merely show up to a gathering on Sunday mornings to pay him respects. It's not merely to obey him. It's to love him. So there's this deep commitment and affection. So this includes emotions, but it's more than that. It leads to actions, but it's not reduced to an action alone. I still like the old word affection for this. To love God is to have a deep affection for him. To be deeply devoted to him. It's not a moderate love. Do you see all the words, the, the repetition of the word all? Right? Love with all your heart and with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. So we don't love God with some of ourselves, some of, our t- some of the time. We don't put this on a pie chart and say, let's just make sure that God gets the biggest piece here of all of our affections. No, all of our heart, our whole selves are given to him. So this is deep and thorough and holistic. And now notice it's with every part of us, heart, mind, soul, and strength. The heart is the core of our personality. It's the control center of our lives, the deepest part of us. Now the second command. So if the first is to love God, the second is to love others. So the first is vertical. The second is now horizontal. And that's verse 31. You can see it here. Simply, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting from Leviticus. Notice Jesus doesn't just say love your neighbor, but love your neighbor as yourself. So how do we care for ourselves? How do you care for yourself? I wonder if some of you, as you put the chairs out, thought, I'm going to make sure I get the best one. That's how we care for ourselves. We think, I want to honor my own preferences. I want the best spot, the best place. And so what does it mean to care for other people as we we care for ourselves? Well, we make sure that life works out for them, not just for ourselves. We prefer others like we prefer ourselves. This means in every single situation, our role as followers of Jesus, is to seek the good of others. So those are the two commands. And then Jesus says right after giving these two, there's no other greater than these. So he was asked for the greatest command and he gives not one but two. And then he says these aren't just at the top of the list. They're really in a class by themselves. So here's just a few observations to show just how profound this answer is that Jesus gave. Notice that these two commands are just, they're integrated. They're bound up together. You can't ultimately separate them. Jesus refused to answer the question, what's the greatest command, by just saying love God or love your neighbor. He gave two commands. So the repeated emphasis through the Bible is that if you love God, you will love others. Because he loves them and he's made them in his image. And if you claim to love God, but you don't love others, it invalidates your claim. You can't claim to love God if you do not love others. And these are ordered too. He gives two commands and it's significant that loving God was first. So these are inseparably bound together, but you can't reverse the order. Because you love God first and then from that love, you want to love those whom he loves. You want to obey him. Loving God overflows toward loving others. And then notice also how omni-relevant these two commands together are. This ethic of Jesus touches every single moment you have ever lived. And it will apply to every moment 
you will live in the future. Think about this command to love God with all our heart, mind, and strength. When you wake up in the morning, this calls us then to have a disposition of gratefulness directed personally to God for another day. When you work, every aspect of work is to be given as an offering of service to God. When you come home from work, if you leave for work, you say, God, help me to honor you in the way that I treat my family. If you're in a relationship with someone, you think, how can I honor God in the way that I talk to or treat this person? How can I honor God in the way that we handle our physical relationship if we're dating? When you study for class, you think, God, thank you for my mind and this topic and help me think truly about it and rightly about it and love you as I learn. When you think about retirement and every moment that will flow from that, you think, God, help me honor you, not myself, but you with my time. And think of the omni-relevance of the second commandment. When you start your work day, you think, not just how do I honor God, but as a result of that, how can I serve others with my job today? And some of you may have experienced this. You've become Christians. You've gotten this new ethic worked into your soul by Jesus, and it transformed your job from drudgery to delight. Because you realize the thing you do that maybe you don't even like, you've now realized is a way to not just serve God, but to bless other people and to serve other people, even if you're a few steps removed. When you think about people who don't know Jesus, the love command leads us to share the love of Christ with them. You can't claim to truly love people if you have no heart for them to know the God who made them to be with Jesus forever. When you think of your spouse, that's your closest neighbor. So the love command leads us to honor them rather than belittle them, to serve them and bless them rather than think, how can I just be served by them? Younger people, you have a brother or sister, that's your closest neighbor. And so this means seeking to honor their preferences before your own. So you let them have the better seat in the room. You let them get the better plate of food. You let them go first when playing the game. It is important for social issues today. Do you love people across ethnic and social lines? Do you love your unborn neighbors and care for their rights and speak for them? Do you love those whom you may even deeply disagree with about gender and sexuality? So that's the omni-relevance and the profound nature of this ethic that Jesus gives. So that's the double love command and what it means. Now, how do we respond to this? You know, the answer may not be as obvious as it looks at first to, to this question the man asked. Because we might think, well, the, the obvious answer to respond here is to obey. Right? Simple. Jesus says, this is the ethic, so do it. But Jesus says something here that shows that's not the first response that we should think. So this man is impressed by Jesus' answer, right? He repeats it back to Jesus in verses 32 to 33. He added a couple things, noting that these commands are even more important than sacrifices, which he picked up from the Old Testament as well. And then Jesus says something striking in verse 34. Look at it with me. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, so this man agrees with him, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So wait a minute. This man just affirmed what Jesus said. He embraces the love command. And Jesus doesn't say, correct, you my friend are in the kingdom. No, he says you're not far from it. So there's something about this man's answer that means he's not far from it, but he's also not in it. 
This is critical for us to see. So he's not far on the one hand because he grasps the ethics of God, yes. He grasps that it's not merely external obedience. Love is the priority. So that separates him from many of the Pharisees and other leaders who tried to merely manage God's expectations by externalizing them. So he's saying there's no room for hypocrisy here. Obedience flows from sincere love for God and others. So he's not far. He's gotten closer. But he's not in the kingdom. Why not? Because Jesus never said that loving God and loving people will get you into the kingdom. That would be a Santa Claus theology. It would mean he's making a list, he's checking it twice, making sure if you're naughty, you're nice, and if you're nice, you're in. But Jesus didn't say, the kingdom of God is at hand, so get to loving each other so you can get in. No, what did he say? At the very beginning of his ministry, he told us how, to, how we enter. Mark 1.15. The kingdom of God is at hand. What's next? Repent and believe in the gospel. We enter the kingdom by repenting and believing in the gospel. Now what does it mean to repent and believe? Especially in light of what we've just seen from Jesus with this double love command. Well to repent first. That's to confess and turn away from sin. So this means that you actually acknowledge that you have failed to measure up to this double love command. We do not enter by obeying the double love command, but by admitting that we don't. This means that many people who think they're in the kingdom because they obey aren't. And many who know that they fail are actually close. To believe then, after repentance and paired with repentance, is to trust in Jesus. Think of it this way. It's trusting in Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and outpoured spirit. So you trust in his life. You see that he actually is the only one who has perfectly obeyed this double love command. He is the only one who fulfilled this in his life. He is the perfect lover of God the Father and lover of others. As he's explaining his ethic... He has embodied that ethic, and he alone has. So we trust that he has lived the perfect life that we've not. And then you trust in his death. This means that you trust in his atonement for your failure to love, rather than trying to self-atone. You give up all efforts to self-atone. We try to self-atone for our failure by making ourselves feel bad, by self-hatred, by just trying harder to obey. To repent and to believe is to give up this self-atonement project, and trust in Jesus' atonement on the cross, where he died for our sins. And then we trust in his resurrection and outpoured spirit. He rose, he ascended to heaven, he poured out his spirit on his people. And so as you trust him, you, you receive this Holy Spirit, you get a new heart, and out of this new heart, you now not only trust in him, but you actually do begin to love him and love others. You have a new heart and a new spiritual power to obey. That's the gift of his kingdom, is that he now will empower you to obey. So the love command, this double love command, does not get you into the kingdom. Acknowledging that you failed, that Jesus alone has obeyed, and that he died for you, receiving him, that's how you get in the kingdom. And then once you're in, he, by the Holy Spirit's power, empowers you to obey it. Not to get in, but because you're already in. 
So let's wrap up by considering finally the surprising impact of this double love command. So first, this transforms our lives. The great surprise of this text is that you do not enter the kingdom by obeying the love command. However, once you're in by faith, you start obeying. Because to enter the kingdom by faith is a radical transformative act. It's, you do not enter by hearing a profound command to love, but by being profoundly loved by love itself. Our God is a triune God of love eternally existing in a fellowship of love, and he's created this world to share his love with us. And we've blown it. We have not loved him back. We have failed to love one another. And then Jesus came, and Jesus is love incarnate. He's, as one theologian put it, love covered over in flesh. He himself is the embodiment of love. And he came to love those who have failed so profoundly to love. You know, he's giving this double love command just days away from being crucified, right? Experiencing the hatred of the world against him. And he's doing this for those who were against him. At the cross, he shows his perfect love for those who have failed. And when we see him doing this for us, and as we receive this and it enters deep into our hearts, this transforms us. So Jesus doesn't love us because we love. You don't make yourself lovely to him. He loves you and he makes you loving. So this is radically transformative for us. It also, second, creates cultures of love. This isn't just about personal transformation. When people receive the love of Christ like this, it kindles not just a love for Christ back, but a love for his people. So Jesus came into the world not just to save individuals, but to gather these people into a new community of love. So this double love command then is not just here to make us realize we don't do it so that we trust in him as the one who alone can receive us by grace. But it's also here then to show, now that you're in the kingdom, this is what life will look like. This is what it means to live as a Christian. And so we have a culture then as local churches that, you know, we call a gospel culture. That's what this text is describing. It's a gospel culture of loving God and loving others. If you want to know what we aspire to as a church, if you want to know what we are all called to participate in together, the sacred responsibility we're all called to cultivate, it's this. And what a joy and privilege. We are called to receive the love of Christ and, and let the Spirit so profoundly transform us by that love that we create around us a whole new atmosphere toward one another. We receive it from each other. We give it to one another. This new atmosphere of love where we love God and love one another. Third, this double love command transformed the course of history. I mentioned at the beginning that Jesus' ethics have shaped Western culture so much that we can hardly even see it anymore. It's become the air that we breathe. Here's one way you can tell that it's shaped you. How would most people in the West respond to hearing Jesus' answer here? To the question, what's the greatest commandment? They'd hear Jesus' answer, the heart of its love, and they'd say, well, that's obvious, right? Anyone could have said that. Love your neighbor as yourself. But did you notice how everyone responded there? Verse 34. At the end of this text, it says that his answer was so surprising that no one dared ask him any more questions. It was revolutionary. 
And as it even spread outward through the whole Roman world, it transformed it. The ancient civilizations did not value universal human rights, freedom, dignity, children, women, valuing people across ethnic divides. It was Christians who took this love command so seriously and embodied it in these new gospel cultures of loving God and one another that it caught the attention of the public and it radically transformed the world. And then over the course of the centuries, it worked its way in and saturated Western civilization. So, of course, we can point to a number of examples where we see the opposite of this, and we see Christians or those who bear the name of Christ failing in this. But even then, the answer is not to ditch Christianity, but to call people and the church back to the real thing. Because this love command, that Jesus is planting this right at the center of his people, it means that Christianity has self-correction built in. Do you see that? We can keep calling one another back to Jesus and the ethic of love. Where there's massive failures, we can say that is a, that's not an example of real Christianity. That's a failure of real Christianity. That's not an example of following Jesus. That's a failure to follow Jesus. And so we're called back to Jesus' love command. So let's wrap up by just considering the last, how can this have an impact then on us right now? Well, let's consider again this statement Jesus made to the man. You are not far from the kingdom. So, there's a distance going on here, right? You can get close, you can be far, you can be not far. There's a spectrum. And everyone is along a spectrum. Some of us here are in the kingdom, like one foot in. Some of us are in deep. Some of us are right outside the door of the kingdom, ready to step in. Some of us are not far, like this man. Some of us are very far away. I think of those leaders who were trying to arrest and kill Jesus right there. If you think of the spectrum from zero to 100, and you think of 50 as like the line you cross over into the kingdom, they're at zero. This man's at like 45. Where are you? That's the question that this text leaves us with. And by where are you, the question is not, how, how good are you at obeying these love commands and do you need to try harder? to impress Jesus. No, maybe you're in the single digits. You, you have very little interest in Jesus. You're actually pretty hostile to him, but you're at least here. Maybe you're like this man. You're in the 40s. You're sincerely seeking Jesus. You're close. Maybe you're in the 50s. You've entered the kingdom and you're wanting to continue to grow closer to Jesus. The point here is that each of us can take a step close, closer right now. Wherever you are, once you're in, you're, that's not just settled. You can go closer. You can receive more of Jesus' love. You can be transformed to love more. This is relevant to every bit of life. And I have to be honest, spending the week speaking about this text was at some times incredibly depressing. Uh, because I'm awful. I mean, I mean, looking at Jesus and looking at this command and then looking at myself at times, I'm like, wow. And I know that if you're honest with yourself, you feel the same way often. And so there is, there's more room to grow. And so what we do is we go back to the beginning. We repent and believe and then are transformed by his love. So I think especially for those of you who might feel like you're right at the door, I want to encourage you, if you feel like you might even be ready right now, step into the kingdom. Repent and believe in Jesus. Stop self-atonement and beating yourself up. Receive his love and enter in.
and we welcome you into the gospel community of love. And if you are not sure you're ready to take that step in, uh, consider today what obstacles do you have? What is left? And uh, seek out a Christian friend or I'd love to talk with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for creating a world that reflects your beauty and your kindness and your love. And we together acknowledge that we have failed miserably to reflect your love to you and one another. And so we thank you for not stopping. We thank you that your love is too great to be limited to our own failings and what we deserve. Um, but it is abundant and overflowing. And so we pray that you would even help us as we continue to sing to receive and enjoy and delight in your love. Amen.